Got it. All right, welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Kabbalah and Coffee. This is a very monumental occasion. I'm just going to say that. This is huge. We're back in person. We, were back. we tried a few sessions back. You know, we just did a few, and then we, we kind of went back to Zoom, um, Zoom only. Um, but this is our first, like, we're back in person, formal KNC with breakfast. So it is, uh, it is really wonderful to be back in person. It's also great to have our online friends and our online connection because we have, um, we have a nice crowd as well that loves to join remotely, folks that are in town, out of town, whatever, but it's really great. Hey, Ed, I should mention, of course, the series is sponsored by Ed in honor of his, the memory of his mother, um, Arden Zinn, um, and indeed the learning should be a tribute for her. Um, everyone here has a copy of the text, and um, for those of you online, I will pull it up soon when we need to read inside. But you know this class, right? We don't get inside until, right, for, for a few minutes. All right, so I want to begin by talking about theodicy. So who knows the, na the word theodicy? Adam, give us a working definition of theodicy. Oh, I don't know the definition. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Right. Who's got a working definition of theodicy? Okay. Of the, well, theodicy. Well, that's the odyssey. Yeah, right. right. No, 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 no. No, right. So that's. <laughs> right. Um, but theodicy. Theodicy is the. It's the. It's the exploration of trying to answer the the problem of evil in the world. Right. How do you have evil? In God's world. Now, assuming God is good, assuming God is, is all-powerful and all-knowing and all-good, right? If you assume those three things, if you assume that God is not good, then there's no question. But if you assume that God is good, if you assume that God is all-knowing, so it's not like he doesn't know about the existence of evil, you assume that God is all-powerful, which means that he could get rid of evil if he wanted to, so then you have a problem, right? If God is good, God is all-knowing, God is all-powerful, so then why is there evil? Why is there evil in the world? And theodicy is the journey, is the process to explore answering this question. And the question is answered in many different ways. Many great scholars and philosophers, mainly philosophers, have dealt with this issue of theodicy and have come to different conclusions. Some say there was a book written by Harold Kushner. Harold Kushner, a rabbi who lost a child at a young age. And he wrote a book um, what was the book? Something about bad things happening. Why do good things happen to bad people? Or why do bad things happen to good people? Exactly, yeah. Why do bad, right, exactly. Thank you, Dr. Maxey. Why do bad things happen to good people? And his core, my, my understanding is his answer is essentially that God, oh, what's his answer? It's been a while since I've, since I've uh, looked at the book. The answer is, I think there are certain things that, are that God chooses simply to put out of his control. That God gives free range. God gives the ability. Hey, Danielle. Welcome. Good to see you. God gives the ability, the openness for things to happen kind of without micromanaging. It's one approach. Um, but a few weeks ago, maybe even more than a few weeks ago, some sessions ago, we dealt with this question in the reverse. Not why do bad things happen to good people, but why do good things happen to bad people? Right? Why, do, why do the wicked prosper? Why is it that people that have negative intentions seem to do well sometimes? It's like, couldn't God stop it? Couldn't God just put an end to it before it, it, it got to 
to where it got to, to where it was successful. And even on a, on a more basic level, why is it that God seems to not um, take away the reward from those who do evil? It would seem that in a world in which goodness is rewarded and evil is punished, it would be much easier to know what to do and what not to do. The simple answer, of course, is if it was that easy, free choice wouldn't be a thing, right? If every time we did the right thing, we got showered with, you know, it's like a casino in Vegas, right? If you got showered with, like, guilt, and every time we did something wrong, right, we got zapped on high, from on high, God forbid, right? So then it would be easy. I saw this incredible um, example. Have you ever heard of a flea circus? Not a flea market, but a flea circus. Flea circus used to be a thing. I don't know, I don't know if it's a thing anymore. Um, it used to be a thing where, you know, like a circus with animals trained and whatever. They train fleas to do certain tricks, and they kind of stay within a certain realm. Question is, how do you get fleas to not just fly away and whatever, do their thing? So here's the legend. I haven't confirmed this. This is not firsthand information, but this is my understanding of how it works. You take fleas when they're young. You catch them in a jar. And then you shake the jar around. And they're flying around and bouncing. It takes about 30 minutes before the flea learns not to go past the top of the jar and outside the confines of the jar. You with me on this? The flea learns like to stay within a certain box. Very quick learners. Then you can open up the jar. Did I say box? Box, jar, whatever. You can open up Put it in a jar, right? Close the jar, shake it around. 30 minutes later, you'll open up the jar, and the fleas are now trained not to go past a certain perimeter. How do they train elephants also, right? How, how, do, how do circuses train elephants? Put to not put them in a jar, exactly. <laughs> well, a very big jar, a very big jar. So what's with elephants? I've heard the same thing. By the way, this is not advocating for circuses. I'm not getting, you know, this is not... Not advocating, I'm just saying, my understanding is, you take a baby elephant and you tie a, 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 a rope, right? You tie it up to a rope and then the elephant can't move past the rope. And when it's older, you can also keep it on a leash, even though it could destroy the leash altogether. But since it was ingrained in its youth that it can't break past this thing. so it... And so the reality is that human beings work in the very same way. That we're trained, there's a lot of training that we have as, as when we're younger, when we're very impressionable. And that training has an, a, a long-lasting effect on us to tell us what we can and cannot do. And so we go through life and we think, I can do this because I was successful in the past, or I can't do that because I was not successful. Meanwhile, it's just getting stuck in a jar when we were younger, but now we can fly, there's no jar, but we're conditioned to think there's a jar. My point is, conditioning goes a long way. So, if God conditioned us to realize that every time we do good, good things happen. Every time we do bad, bad things happen, well, we wouldn't do bad. We would only do good. We would be conditioned perfectly. We would be all tzaddikim. God doesn't want us to have it so easy. Why not? That's another question. God wants it to be a situation of free choice where there's good and bad, and both choices are equally weighted in front of us. And so he makes it a little bit more difficult. You do good, bad things might happen. You do bad, good things might happen. It's a toss-up. It's a toss of the coin. You do a mitzvah, you never know how it's going to come back to bite you, right? There was once a rabbi who, um, who did a favor, like a really, really big favor for someone. 
And he said, to, and the guy said, how can I ever repay you? Like, I, I don't, I, you know, I can't pay you monetarily, but how can I ever repay you? And the rabbi said, look, when you, at some point when you start throwing stones at me, make sure they're small pebbles instead of the big rocks. Because that's the way it is, right? Especially when somebody does a favor for you. Because now you feel a little, you know, like you feel a little beholden. So the only way to get out of that is by saying, well, they're not a good person. Somehow to tear them down to make it. Are you with me on this? Are we getting too, like, too dark here? Yeah. Um, a coin toss, you start at zero each time. Right. You You're saying it doesn't. Saying even if, you, even if you flip the coin 12 times and it landed on heads. The 13th time, it's still the same odds, right. Yeah. They say, I don't know about, I don't know if this is true, they say with kids that it's not the same way. That if you've had, a, like, I'm just going to give a random example. If you've had a certain number of boys in a row, just, just a random example, the odds of having the other gender are actually diminished. I don't know if that's true, but that's what we were told. For those of you that are not, that, that are not sure what I'm talking about, so we have, can I know how to six kids, five boys, and a girl. So I guess somehow we broke the, we, we broke through the odds. Anyway, back to our story. So, um, what was I saying? Yeah, so if it was so obvious every time that we did good, that good things would happen, every time we did bad, bad things would happen, free choice would be eliminated, it would be almost too easy to do good, too hard to do bad, and so we have a reality where it's like, it's like the coin toss, like you said, right? So you do good, who knows? Who knows what the repercussion is going to be? You do bad, you might be successful. The question is, how does it work? On a, on a spiritual, on an energy level, from, from a place of Kabbalah, how does it work? How does a flow of energy from God flow to a place of evil? How does it flow to a place of evil? And so over the last, I don't know how many number of weeks, maybe four weeks, four sessions, I mean, maybe six sessions, maybe even more, over the last number of sessions, We've been giving one answer to this question. And in short, I'll call this the diminished light um, paradigm. The diminished light paradigm says that due to the, hey Toba, that due to the condition of tzimtzum, which is where the light, the divine light is diminished, after successive tzimtzumim, which is plural for tzimtzum, where the light is successively diminished, 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 diminished. So the light is so diminished that it can even go to a place of evil, even to a negative place. So the light in its full form is incompatible with an evil place. right? Light in its full form is incompatible with a place of evil and darkness. But you take light and you cut it down again and again and again and again. You diminish its potency, you diminish its brightness, its brilliance, at some point it can even go inside a negative space. I'm trying to think of a good example. I was, I've been trying to, honestly, I've been trying to think of a good example of this, like completely out of the box from a human perspective for the last 24 hours or so, and I have not yet come up with a good example. But, so we're gonna, I'm gonna stick with the language of Kabbalah. When you take light, and you reduce it, and you screen it, and you put it in front of curtains, and you put it in front of you know, um, uh, shields, what comes out the other side looks very different, and it could even be compatible with a place of evil. So this is the process by which the light that undergoes the tzimtzum, the contraction, can ultimately lead, can ultimately be directed or misdirected into a place of evil and negativity. In the, in the, 
using the language of, of our text that we've had the last few weeks, so Malchut, which is the lowest of the ten Sefirot, which represents the most tzimtzumed, I'm using it as a, uh, I don't know, adjective? Whatever, at tzimtzumed, it's the most, would it be adjective? Yes, did I get that right? Sort of, who knows? It's the most diminished Sefirot, the most diminished, diminished point of light, and thus, it goes down to the lowest of spaces, into our world, and the energy that comes from Malchut, that goes into us and into the world, can, through various permutations, end up, through our actions, into a place of evil and negativity. And when we direct our energy toward a negative place, we actually get a boost of energy by redirecting energy into that space through those actions. We get a boost of energy, and so it feels exciting, and it feels thrilling, and all that stuff. Meanwhile, it's basically directing energy that has been diminished into a dark space and then collecting the profits off of that. That's method one. Today we're going to begin chapter eight, sorry, discourse number eight, which on, your, on the printouts, I'm going to pull it up on the screen so we're not going to get inside yet, but on the printouts you see there it's page 128, 129. The printouts are really small. And I apologize for that. I hope everyone brought their magnifying glasses, <laughs> exactly. Um, we have to tweak the printing on this. Um, but in chapter 8, what we're going to do is we're going to present a brand new way, uh, or a new way in which evil can derive its energy. Not from a diminishing of the light, but from the original space of light that is so infinite that it doesn't even take into consideration the difference between good and evil. So let me explain. There's a statement from Kabbalah, I believe it's from the Eitz Chaim. The Eitz Chaim, now I believe it's from the Eitz Chaim. I didn't look it up before today's class. My mem- if my memory serves me correctly, it's from Eitz Chaim. Eitz Chaim means tree of life. But Eitz Chaim is also the name of a book, name of a book of Kabbalah written by Rabbi Chaim Vital. He was the primary student of Rabbi Isaac Luria, the Arizal, the founder of Lurianic Kabbalah, hence the name Lurianic, Luria, Lurianic Kabbalah, which is the most mainstream form of Kabbalah that we study today. So Rabbi Isaac Luria lived in the 1500s. He had a student, Rabbi Chaim Vital. He wrote down his teachers, his master's teachings because Rabbi, Chaim Vit- Rabbi Yitzchak Luria, Rabbi Isaac Luria, didn't write down his teachings. He just taught, and his students wrote it down. So uh, this, the book that was written based on these teachings, one of the books is called Eitz Chaim. And I believe it's in Eitz Chaim where it says that Arein Sof, the infinite light, is Lamaila Maila Arein Ketz, is beyond, beyond any measure, and also lower, lower to no end. So it's both above, like infinitely above, and also incredibly descendant below. It has both modalities of being high and low. What does that mean? So that's a statement from Kabbalah. So the Hasidic masters and the mystics kind of peel away the layers of understanding to explain what does that mean? What does it mean that the R itself is Lamaila Maila Aden Ketz? It's the highest of the high, and the lowest of the low. What does that mean? So typically when we think of God, so we think of God as being great, and we think of great as being incompatible with not great. So, for example, the great philosophers believed that God had nothing to do with this world. Why? I'm talking about like Aristotle and, and other Greek philosophers believe that God pretty much, God, the, like the prime mover, first cause, like OG God, not like 
other forces, gods. But like God, God, God. They believe that God, the originator of all, is completely detached from this reality. Why? Because God is, is pure. God is infinite. God is not messy and complicated. And this world is not pure. It's not, it's not uh, only good, right? There is evil. And it's messy and it's complicated. So it doesn't make sense that God would be intimately involved with this world that's so broken, so fragmented, so messed up. It just doesn't make sense. So in an, in an effort to protect God, if you will, from the, from the evil of this world, the philosopher said God is beyond. God is above. God is transcendent. God's not right here yet. God started everything. But then God put a lot of other forces in, 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 um, in, the, in, in the middle, a lot of uh, middle managers to kind of facilitate this world and, and get everything moving over here. But God is not like super hands-on with this reality. And they did so in order to essentially protect God from being enmeshed in this dark world. And the premise of this is essentially to say that God, sorry, that infinity cannot, is, is incompatible with that which is finite. Right? Infinity and finitude are complete opposites. So if God is infinite, so God cannot be found in a finite environment. It just doesn't make sense. So if God is infinite, then God is infinite in an infinite realm, and the finite space must have its own rules, must have its own gods with a lowercase g, right? God, this world, this finite reality, this universe must have its own kind of governance, but God, the infinite God, must be beyond. So this is where logic would say, this is very logical, to say that the infinite has nothing to do with the finite. But Kabbalah comes along and says something different. Kabbalah says that God is both infinite and finite. Now, you're going to say, wait a second, God is finite, so you've just limited God. That seems very blasphemous. You're saying God is finite? What Kabbalah says is much more nuanced. What Kabbalah says is God is so infinite, God is not limited to the definition of infinite either. Because to say that God is infinite and therefore incompatible with finite is to ultimately limit God to the infinite realm as opposed to the finite realm. Does that make sense? Yes? If I say that God is too big for this world, for this finite world, what I've done in an effort to, to, to keep God unlimited is I paradoxically limited God. I've said God cannot fit into a finite space. So thus, I'm blocking God out of a certain place, which means I'm limiting God to the realm of the infinite and blocking God from the realm of the finite. Yes? So the true perfection is to say that God is both infinite and finite and none define him perfectly. In other words, God is, at, is as at home with the infinite as at home with the finite. Let me give you an example. Let's talk about teaching. So you have a teacher who is absolutely brilliant. This teacher is a physics teacher, quantum physics, quantum mechanics, like highest level physics that you can imagine. So brilliant, right, that this teacher teaches like the most advanced students out there. Only the most advanced students can understand the word that this teacher is talking about. Put this teacher in a fifth grade, fifth grade classroom. Is it going to work? What do you think? Disaster. Complete disaster. This teacher in a fifth grade classroom, the kids will have no idea what he's talking about or she, right, have absolutely zero clue what this teacher is talking about. Because the teacher is so brilliant. 
And then you have a teacher who teaches fifth grade on the level of the students. So now, we can ask the question, question number one. So who is the more brilliant teacher? The fifth grade teacher or this advanced, you know, physics teacher? Who is more brilliant? Who would you say? <laughs> That's the trick answer. <laughs> I'm saying the simple answer would be, you would say, right? The, Well, no, so hold, I'm getting there. All right, so everyone is... The PhD. Everyone's, everyone's on to me in my, uh, my leading questions. No one's taking the bait. Okay, I'll take my own bait. So you would say initially... Sorry? I'd say it was both. Yeah, you're agreeing with, with everybody here. All right, I thought I could catch you guys on a Sunday morning, you know, whatever. Give the obvious answer. Maybe it's not so obvious. All right, so one might think initially that who's the more brilliant teacher? It's the one who's the higher level academic, you know, the one who's teaching the high, super high level physics and whatever. Okay. But we know that that's not necessarily the case because that put that person, as I said, in the fifth grade classroom, they can't teach. Turns out they have a limitation. They can't teach. So, who, so who's greater now, right? So you think that teacher is a higher level. Okay, on one level they're higher, but there's a deficiency that comes with that, right? Every advantage, or many advantages, come with a disadvantage, right? So there's an asset and a liability. So the, the in Hebrew we say the maila. The maila means like the advantage or the, the asset. The maila is high level. The chsarin is, which is the, the, the deficit, right? The drawback is they can't teach the young class. Now, conversely, the fifth grade uh, teacher, science teacher, let's say, they can teach very effectively fifth grade, but they can't teach the advanced physics class. So their mila is, their advantage is, right, that they can teach the fifth grade, but the, 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 the limitation is they can't teach the more advanced class. So each one has its mila and chsarn. Each one has its advantage and disadvantage. So when we say that God is perfect, what it means is not that God is infinite, or that God is finite, but God has the advantages of both. God is, okay, now don't take this literally, don't isolate this audio, please. God is both the advanced physics teacher and the fifth grade teacher at the same time. God is the greatest of the great and the lowest of the low. Not that God forbid God is the lowest of the low, I don't mean it like, like exactly like that, but I mean that God's light both is the most transcendent, infinite above, but also it goes down, down, down to every place of the universe, to the lowest place of the universe. That, and, and what is at the core of everything that we see around us? Right? What powers everything? What is at the, the heart of every piece of our universe? It's the same infinite light that is so infinitely beyond that it's also so infinitely within. Because again, if we say that God only exists beyond, then that is a profound limitation on God's reality. To say that God is only existing in the realm beyond, but not in the, in the realm within, to say that God is not here because this is too finite for God's perfect reality, constitutes a severe limitation on God. So if we're truly not limiting God, we're not limiting God not to the finite nor to the infinite, God has the ability to move between both seamlessly. Okay, I need to check in. Does that make any sense? Yes? Yes? Perfect. By the way, 
If it makes sense, I'm happy. It's also things that we've talked about on occasion before. The idea of infinite, finite, the typical paradigm that we think that they're a contradiction. And with God, we say there's perfection, which includes both. But again, today I'm, I'm trying to introduce this idea, this, the phraseology from, the, from Kabbalah that says the Aryan of the infinite light is both above, like infinitely above, and also imminently below. Lamata mata adintachlis, that means low, low to the ultimate depths. That's where God is, that's where the Ain Sof, that's where the infinite light is to be found. And so what I want to say today is that these, th- that the duality of this statement represents the two paths by which evil can gain its, its energy. Until now, the previous several sessions, we've been talking about the method, and I mentioned this before, the method by which the light descends through tzimtzum, and because of the descent of the light, it becomes ultimately so diminished that it becomes accessible even to the realm of evil. That is lamata mata arintachlis. That's when the light goes down, down, down. It's now accessible even, ultimately, even by evil. Free choice, evil, etc. But there's another methodology. There's another way, there's another paradigm by which evil can gain its energy. And that is when evil rises to that space where the Ain Sof is lamayla mayla arinkets where the Ain Sof, where the infinite light is, truly beyond. And I want to share with you another phrase, another term in Kabbalah, a, a, a term that we've used before, but that's very relevant to today's discussion. And that is the phrase called makif. Makif. What is makif? Makif means that which encompasses or surrounds. So the opposite of makif is pnimi. Not panini, that's a sandwich. Pnimi is that which is inside. So panimi is inside, makif is outside. What's, what does that mean? Let me go to my, one of my favorite examples of this, which you may have heard me say many times. So imagine a room that, where the lights are on. So we happen to be here in a room where the lights are on, and you're probably in a room wherever you are where the lights are on. Imagine if you shut the lights. What happens when you shut the lights? The room goes dark. Assuming there are no windows, right? The room goes dark immediately. Why don't we say that the room should stay light for a little bit? After all, the light was on for, for an hour or so. So maybe when you shut off the light, it should stay light for a little bit and then slowly fade away. It doesn't. The moment you turn off the light, it gets dark. Why? Because the light never transformed the room to become light. The way light operates is not by transforming, but by superimposing. Right? So the light says, now you're light. And when the light goes away, you're no longer light because you were never light. The light was light. The room, you, the room, were never light. Does that make sense? So we turn on lights in a room. The room doesn't become light. The light shining in a room. The room never became light. Because if the room became light, then even when you shut off the light, the room should remain lit. As opposed to education. You learn something. And now you gain the information. So a teacher was sharing information, sharing wisdom. So like the light of wisdom was shining. But then you actually gain that wisdom. So the teacher can walk out of the room and hopefully the idea doesn't disappear, right? You, have now, you, you now have that idea. Why? Because that was internalized. Because wisdom works differently than light. Light 
doesn't transform, wisdom does transform. Light operates from outside in, not even in, just from the outside. It superimposes, it's, now you're light. Now you're not light, right? Wisdom works from the inside out. Wisdom works in a level of pnimi, works from the inside. So that's why education is like the most transformative thing we can imagine, right? Because what does education do? It literally changes people from the inside. So you can force people, like you talk about like social change, societal change. How do things change? Information. You can force people from the, out, from the outside, right, to behave a certain way, to think, to, well not think, to behave a certain way, to, 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 to fall in line a certain way. But until you've changed the mind, you haven't actually changed anything. Because the mind is what, cha- what creates change from the inside out. So again, that's the, the difference between wisdom and light, physical light, is that light operates from outside. Light operates in a very domineering, in a very um, imposing, like imposing its will on the room. You are now light. Not you, I'm light, but now you're gonna bend to my will and shine, even though it's not you at all. Whereas wisdom, hopefully, is not about domineering. It's not about imposing, which is why when somebody imposes an idea, it's like a corruption of the whole process of learning. Right? Imposing an idea is like the opposite of what learning and wisdom ought to be, which is from the inside out, not from the, not from the outside in. Okay, but getting back to our example, so getting back to the terminology. So we have makif and pnimi. Makif means that something, it's there, but it's, it's, not, it's not inside, it's outside. So the light in this room right now, it's operating on a makif level. It's not pnimi. Nothing about this room is changing to become luminescent. That's the question. You're going to ask about glow-in-the-dark stuff? I'm just joking, sorry. Um, so, but for wisdom, I mean, we still receive information or education from the outside in. So, what makes it a difference good. that we, you know... Good, 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 good. So, Donna's asking the question, so one second. But wisdom is also working from the outside in. You're reading something that was outside you and now, right? Or you're hearing something or you're watching something. So it's also operating from, just like light, it's operating from the outside in. So why is it different? I don't know that I could break it down like, you know, chemically, you know, the difference. But the difference is that essentially when, when we learn something, so we integrate it. We take it inside. We compare it with what we know, what we think we know. And we assimilate it into our own being, and it becomes part of us. I don't know that I'm answering the why. I think I'm restating the what. Because you're right. It, could, it does often come from the It's not like the only things we know are the things that we've come up with on our own. It's not true. Right? Somebody told us at some point that 2 plus 2 is 4. And we're like, that's a good point. I never thought of that. And then it resonated. So... The, 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 the process of learning, maybe it's the difference between teaching and learning, right? Like the greatest teachers are those that facilitate learning where the students can, on their own, kind of connect with the information. So yes, it could originate from the outside, but wisdom, when we learn, there's also this mirroring from the inside. And it becomes a third thing because we add our personal... And we add our, our own take on it, which is why you could have a class of 20 people and you ask them after the end, at the end of the class, so what did, what did you learn? And it could be 20 different answers. 
because everyone learns it in a different way because it operates from the inside. Whereas when it comes to light, since it's operating completely, not only originating from the outside, but it's, it's operating in a top-down way, there's no different experience of light. Light is light, I think. Light is light, right? I don't think it's a different experience. So, the idea here is that there's makif and pnimi, and makif, there's that which encompasses, and that which is internal. And when we say that, when we use the word encompass, it doesn't mean that it's not here, that it's somehow, you know, up in the heavens. No, this light in this room is makif. It's absolutely here. And we're utilizing it, we're using it to see each other, to read from a book, right? We're using the light. It's not like we, we don't have access to light because it's so transcendent. But it's operating in a way of makif, which means that it's external. Even as it's here, it's not really here. It really remains beyond. It's really, you, you can never, you're not holding it. You're not owning it. You don't own it. It's just operating on its terms. Which is why, by the way, on a spiritual level, why shortly after the Torah was given to us at Mount Sinai, why we created the golden calf. Because the experience at Sinai was like a light from above that overwhelmed us, but there was no transformation that happened. We had not yet been tra transformed from the inside out. Because you can have an overwhelming experience. Like, people talk about experiences that change their lives or like an epiphany. But as long as it's coming from the outside, as long as it's coming from the outside, there's a danger that it's not going to be integrated unless we do the work. And if it's not integrated, then it remains disconnected from our experience. Okay, so that's a little bit about Makif. So there's Makif and Pnimi. And when we speak about the Aryan Sof, the infinite light, we have the same type of duality. There's the infinite light that is that has undergone the process of tzimtzum, where it's diminished, 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 to the point that it now does fit in with the finite reality. It's like it travels through the ten sphero, the ten energies, and the four worlds until it finally hits our reality. And so the infinite light is now manifest as a table, right? right? Not that God is a table, but the infinite light is now manifest within a table, and the table doesn't exist outside of God. This is pure monotheism, which means that there's no other force of existence, right? It's only God. So this table exists because of the Word of God that is empowering it at this moment. But that Word of God that's empowering the table at this moment is not like the infinite force of God that's transcendent. It's a much more cut, diminished, symptomed version of the infinite light. The infinite light can go down even into a table. But at the same time, the Aryan Sof is the infinite light remains beyond. And that's what I want to speak about right now. As it remains beyond, and beyond again, it could be right here, but it's beyond our perception. It could be operating here. Right? Existence exists because of the infinite light that's transcendent. So the, the very... There's a duality between that which the tzimtzum creates and that which the, the infinite light creates. So the infinite light is operating here, but it's not within our grasp because it's infinite, because it's beyond. And it's higher, higher than anything can imagine. So Kabbalah teaches, and we're going to learn this very soon inside, that it's from this realm of infinite, of pure infinity, pure detached almost, infinity, an infinite light that's beyond any measure, that evil can gain energy. What does that mean, that evil can gain energy? 
Give you another example. Imagine a beautiful palace. This is an example that's actually brought in Kabbalah. Imagine a beautiful palace. It's a beautiful, vast palace with so many rooms and so many chambers. And it's so big that it's possible that in the corner somewhere, there's a spider. There's a spider weaving its web. Do spiders weave webs? Do they weave? Yes. Weave, right? Or spin. spin. I knew it didn't sound right. Spinning their, thank you. Spinning their, it's been a while since Charlotte's web. They've been, so the spider could be spinning its web in some corner somewhere. The palace is so vast, it's so big, that it's possible that no one's even going to notice. Why? Because it's so big. There's a realm, as Kabbalah teaches. Right? This is, it's in the book. There's a realm that is so beyond where if there's a spider spinning its web, it might not even be noticed. There's a space that's so beyond that it's beyond even the definitions of good and evil. A level beyond the binary definitions of light and darkness, good, evil, right, good, bad. That from that space, if evil can somehow get to that space, it can take a massive amount of energy and light from that space. Not from the energy that has been diminished, 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 so, so lessened, right, so cut to the point that it's now accessible, but from the original source that's so lofty that it doesn't discern between good and evil. Does that make any sense? Sort of? No? Can we imagine a realm that's so beyond, that's so transcendent, that good doesn't benefit and evil doesn't hurt. Can we imagine a realm within God that is so beyond our actions that if we do good, it doesn't move the needle. And if we do the opposite, it also doesn't move the needle. From that space, even evil can collect energy. So the point is that where does evil get its power from? We ask the question, you know, why do... Why does evil prosper sometimes? Where does it get its energy from? How, how can it be sustained? Yeah, well, God wants the option of negativity for, for balance and free choice, but why is it that evil seems to have like an abundance of energy? Where does it come from? It comes from one of two opposite paths. Either the lowest of the low, like the dregs, like the leftovers of the tzimtzum. It can kind of siphon off, or like the example that we gave a few weeks ago, when the king throws a feast, throws a party, and you have like the, the, the leftovers that are in the garbage and now you know, the rats and whatever can go and grab that. So that's where evil can get from, like the scraps. We'll call it the scraps option. Or it can get from the original warehouse where no one's paying attention. You ask the question, well, God doesn't pay attention. So that's, what, that's, the whole, that's today's big idea. That there's a realm that precedes God's choice of what is good and what is evil. Because if God is truly infinite, on the Lamaila Maila Adin Ketz level, on the higher, higher to no limit, above level, 
It's even beyond the choice of this is right, this is wrong, this I like, this I don't like. It's even beyond that choice. And from that realm, even evil can take. Just want to check in. Make sense? Ish? Yes? Yes? Okay. these forces are truly equal, it should be just as easy to succeed by doing something good. Right. Good. Excellent. I'm asking a great question. So your question is, well, hold on. If there is this, 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 like, truly transcendent, like, almost infinite warehouse that's beyond passport control, I don't know, beyond, like, check your ID at the door, like, good or evil or otherwise. So it's all access. So then why can't good take from that place? It can. It can. Why does it seem like evil goes big? Yeah, well, not even that it goes big, but that it's easier to get a hold of. You know what I mean? Because there are people like, I don't know, if you're like a drug dealer or something, I mean, there are people that drug deal that make as much money as a doctor. Right. But it's really right, hard right. to become a doctor. Right. You know what I mean? Like, right. Like this is almost what we're, what we're exploring here, yeah. is that the path toward, like, windfall, yeah. there's, a, there's a path to windfall to, like, to, like big big uh, either wealth or whatever it is, big light, big energy, by bypassing the structure. Just go into the top. So your question is, why can't you go to the top in a good way also? Um, the answer is, I said before you can, but the, the real answer is, and this will come up in our text, I, I just recalled, in the realm of holiness, every light is supposed to have a, a container. In other words, God wants that, in a healthy way, that the light shouldn't be superimposed from outside, but should be integrated from within. That we should not only enjoy the blessings, but earn them and appreciate them from the inside out, which requires us to be ready for them, which requires the work to build it out. So yeah, it's easier to print the, the medical degree online in three seconds. I know that's not the example that you gave, but I'm just, right? Versus doing the work but one is earned and one isn't. And so the realm of holiness, part of what defines it as holy is that it's earning, it's integrated. The blessings are integrated. So there's an, although it is theoretically open for all evil and good, that, that infinite space beyond, but Kedusha holiness, by definition, is about not getting it from that place. It's about doing the work to do it right, to earn it, and so that it's integrated with our reality. Hope that makes sense. It does, but it just doesn't seem fair. I would agree with you. I would agree with you. I don't think it's fair. Yeah. Are you familiar with the expression evil lurks in the hearts of men? Yeah, the expression evil lurks in the hearts of men, yeah. You asked where it came from, but yeah. that would seem to mean that it's always here. Yeah. Well, from the beginning, from the beginning, Adam and Eve, they had a sidekick, apparently, serpent. And after the sin, according to Kabbalah, the serpent jumps, not literally, but metaphysically, inside. So now we, we, don't, need, we don't need any external voices. We got it inside. We call it the Yetzirah, the evil inclination. Or the Nefesh of Bahamas, the animal soul. But we got it inside. The reptilian right. brain. The reptilian brain, exactly. Matt, yeah. Has, I think it's important the best way to say it, but the platonic form of good and evil. 
that we know exactly what is good and evil and exists beyond God. <laughs> and I hear that, that, that what is good, because I thought, because my mind was before that, because basically God's mind determines what is good and evil. But by God, you just said that what is good and evil exists even beyond so let me clarify. Excellent. So Matt's asking, so are we saying that there's a level beyond God? If God is defining good and evil, are we talking about a level beyond God? So I just want to clarify. This is not beyond God. This is the, 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 the deepest part, if you will, or the highest part of God, so to speak, is beyond the choice that God makes to define good as good and evil as evil. Right. In other words, God, there's a pure, there's a pure level, I don't know, level. There's a pure essence of God, right, which is just beyond, beyond. And then there's a lower dimension in which God says, all right, let's create a world. And now let's create parameters. And now this is good or this is not good. Like, I probably the best example will be gaming. It's always the best example. Because gaming is literally about, like, the, ga the people who create games, you're literally creating worlds. You're creating like a reality. And you can choose what, what are the rules of that, of that game, of, of the universe that you're creating. But there's a level beyond creation where those rules didn't exist. Once you start, once you focus on, okay, well, let me create a game and a world, now you decide who are the good guys, who are the bad guys, what's the objective, what is counter to the objective, right? What will earn reward, what will not earn reward, and you structure your game accordingly. But there is a reality beyond the whole game, right? Because it's just, I don't want to minimize this reality, but it, it's just a game, right? It's just a, one, a, a creation. But there's, a, there's an essence beyond, and that's what we're talking about. It's not beyond God, but it's beyond this whole box. Yeah, probably beyond the way God limited himself in order to That's what it is, right. right. It's be God, so he can create, he can exactly. create rules to be able to set up for creation to even happen. But there's a space that God is above where he limited himself that these rules technically don't really apply. Kind of like the rules of basketball don't apply in real life. Right. Like, you know, I mean, they only apply in that game. Right, you don't actually have to dribble as you walk right. down the street. No <laughs> right. There's like, you know, right. It's like, there's no points, it's just like, it doesn't matter at that point. Right, so right, what Adam is saying is that once God chooses to create, he limits himself by definition because you're creating something that is a thing and not something else. So now you have to create all these rules. So hold on, just one second. So just to clarify this, because I think, thank you for asking the question, because I don't think I explained it clearly before, but this has allowed us to kind of flesh this out. So there's the way God is purely and truly and essentially beyond creation. And then there's as God decides to create. So God's at some point, decides to create. So in that process of creating, so the question is, so what are you creating? Imagine if there was a sidekick. God's like, you know, I'm going to create today. So what are you creating? Not that there is another sidekick, but I'm going to create a world. What kind of world is it going to, what does it look like? Well, I'm thinking, right, so, and so what do you do on this world? All right, I think, and so what's the objective? All right, here's the objective, and how do you get there? Here's how to get there, and so once you start defining it, so then it takes on a form, and now, like, you, like Adam said, now like in basketball, there are rules, right? You have to dribble the ball every time you walk. Well, unless 
you're good and you're on the way to scoring, and then, you know, whatever. But we got to dribble, and then you have to, you know, you can't stand in an area that has pain for more than three seconds, or whatever it is. Like, and, and these round lines have, like, points either this way or that way. It's, it's once you're in, or like soccer, right? I said, look at you, Ed, right? You can't use your hands. Why? Because that's what they decided in, within the world of soccer, aka football and other places of the world, right? Within the, within the realm of soccer, there are rules. Does that mean that objectively hands are not good and feet are good? In, now, I think now maybe I can even use the same language, and now it's hopefully going to make sense. See? It's a process here. In, is it called the pitch? Yeah? Soccer pitch? Yep. On the soccer pitch, in, on, yeah. which one, yeah. in or on? Um, <laughs> on, on the soccer pitch. If you're, right, in the World Cup and on the way to score and the, your teammate pass you the, the, the ball, you should not pick it up and throw it into the goal. That's going to be a problem. Use your feet, not your hands. Hands, no good. Feet, good. But I'm just going to quote Adam. The rules in sports are not the rules of life. Right? Hands are not bad in life. Feet are not better than hands. Who says hands are better? Who says feet are better than hands? On the soccer pitch, feet are good, hands are evil. That's not the way it is in life. In a paradigm beyond, beyond that paradigm. I think evil can exist like in that space because it doesn't have the ability to actually do anything to hurt anyone. That's exactly what we're going to say over here. Correct. Beyond the structure, it doesn't harm. It harms within the structure, within the world, within that realm. It causes havoc. But beyond that entire structure, it doesn't do anything. So if evil can somehow find its way to that place, it can collect boatloads of energy. So there's two completely diametrically opposed ways in which evil can gain energy, either from the dregs, from the, from the scraps, from the lowest, or from the highest. So until now, we spoke about the lowest. And the message here was evil can also succeed. In chapter 8, he explains a paradigm in which evil not only can also succeed, but evil can succeed wildly more successful than good. Because good, although it could also theoretically take from that place, good is, is defined, there's another definition of good in which it operates within that light vessel paradigm, where it integrates it. So it doesn't go outside the system. But evil going outside the system can be even more wildly more successful than good. This is not an encouraging state message so far, but we're, we're, we're developing this idea. Okay. Hold on one second. Donna, you had. Yeah. I think this follows up on what you just said. So I'm wondering how mitzvot relate to this, because um, at the beginning you said, you know, we can do good and we can uh, have swords. We can be evil and we can flourish. Right. But God wants us to do mitzvot. Right. How does that, and good. Every, and one mitzvah can, you know, tip the scales. Right. So Donna's asking, so how does this work with, uh, with a mitzvah? Doing a mitzvah is a good deed, so, and, and then wouldn't that always be, be, be a good thing and a blessing? And, 
Okay, so yeah, th so the short answer is you are correct, that every mitzvah is essentially operating within the, the framework that God created, within the world, within the, the game that God created. That's, a mitzvah means doing the right thing within that, following the rules and doing the right thing, which should lead to more points, and it does. But because the game needs to be challenging, so it has to be a little bit more complicated. See, that's still too easy of a game. If you create a game, it's still too obvious. So you have to create a game. If, th if that's the game, then it's like, yeah, so we'll just do the good things and whatever. What you want to do is you create a game in which the actual identity is, is complicated, in which the hero might say, oh, wait one second, what if I join that side? Maybe I'll be even more successful. Does that make sense? So you're saying... To not always... Info, but then also... So uh, objectively, it accrues points. The mitzvah accrues points, but it's not always visible to us. That's the point. It's not that a mitzvah could not, might not even lead to a reward. It always leads to, to light. It always does. But in our reality, we don't always see it. And we might see, I did a mitzvah and I got more challenges. That might be our perception, but that perception is only created in order to make it more difficult of a choice to do the right thing. But objectively, it is still doing the right thing, and it still is accruing points. Not that it's about the points, but it's always about the points. No, I'm kidding, but, it, but, it, but, there are, but it is but achieving. We're just not aware. Why are we not aware? Because that's also part of the programming of the game. Part of the programming of the game is that we shouldn't be aware, so that it should be more of a challenge each and every time. Otherwise, the game would be too easy. Yeah, ju just for the reward. It'll be like, oh, yeah, this is, this is great. This feels good. Let me do, oh, that feels bad. I'm not going to do that. This feels good. I'll do this. And then it's, it's, it's not, you could create a game like that, but it's not the game that God created. God wanted a game which is more complicated, more complex. God wanted a game in which the hero can at some point desire to become the villain and completely change sides. God wanted like this open game, this open universe, in which literally it's a free-for-all. So that when we finally do choose good, as you said, it's really coming from within. It's not because of the other stuff. Adam. I guess technically what I was just, what I was going to ask, I guess you could, like a person could utilize something that's technically like not that great to do something could they like a like let's say a drug dealer who donates you know clothes to like children or something right you know technically you could still do like how does that work like how does that, would that still be consistent? right no adam adam has a good question so what happens if we take something that is let's say in the realm of negativity right. and then utilize its energy for something positive right. does that radically transform it or does it somehow so we've talked about this before a little bit in, in previous, I don't know, classes, courses, whatever, in which there are certain things that remain forever locked down within the realm of negativity. So even if, we, even, if we, even if it looks like we might be elevating it, it doesn't objectively elevate the experience. It remains forever tethered down to a, uh, to a negative place. So can I say for sure what's happening on energy level in, in any given specific circumstance? No, but as a general rule, it is possible that something is attached to negativity and cannot be released unfettered from that from that space. So let's just say, like, I don't know, like, but I'm just using the drug deal example. Let's say, like, you deal drugs, so you can pay for your college, so you can become a doctor one day, so that right. never 
Again, I, 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 I don't know that I can comment on any specific you know, example, but right. there are things that can be elevated and things that cannot. As to what exactly falls into, I don't know that I'm qualified to, you know. Okay, I would just, yeah. I would just, no, 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 I yeah. So I, I think we have a good foundation, enough of a good foundation to jump into our text. As we begin chapter 8, sorry, discourse 8, chapter 1, we're going to see this inside, and I think, I'm hoping, that I've given you enough where this makes sense. So I'm going to pull it up on our screen for everyone that is joining on Zoom. Let's get this up. Okay, Discourse 8, Chapter 1. Here we go. And everyone else has, uh, everyone here has the printouts, which are super tiny. So we'll, we'll work on that for next time. But let's, go, let's, let's jump into the text. All right, this is uh, Discourse 8. You should know there's a total of, in case anybody's wondering, there is a total of 28 discourses. So we're up to 8. So we're like, 8 to 28 is what? A third quarter, somewhere. We're, we're on our way. All right, clarifying svot. Uh, you know, I try to say this, I try to explain what we do. You know, each Sunday I try to tell you what's inside of my own words, but then we go back into the original language. So we're using a, a verse from the book of Deuteronomy here. In chapter in, in discourse eight, and the verse in Deuteronomy says that a person might say to themselves, "I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm going to be fine. Let me do whatever I want." Why? In order to join the sated to the thirsty, which makes literally makes no sense in its original form, but in Kabbalah there is an explanation. So let's we have and we're going to have two explanations, both for both paths of how evil gets its light. So here we go. Let's jump inside. We have noted, clarifying Svot, we have noted the explanation of, quote, in order to join the Seder to the thirsty, that the attribute Malchut, whose feet go down to Biyah, so again, Malchut is the lowest of the ten Sfirot, and Malchut descends, because remember, Malchut represents Tzimtzum, which goes, the light goes down, down, down to the worlds of Biyah, Bria, Yetzira, and Asiya, even this lowest world. So, Malchut combines the sated, meaning the citra achra, with the thirsty. Sated is, is a reference to evil, because evil is always satisfied, whereas holy is always wanting more. So evil is always, yeah, it's good. But holy is always, ah, I want God, I can't have God. Meaning, Malchut itself to receive additional nurture from the holy. This is, an, this is according to Rashi's definition of svot as joining. So, the first explanation of this verse is that it's joining, in, again, going back to that first line here, in order to join the sated to the thirsty, that means that there's a realm called sated, which is evil, a realm called thirsty, which is holy, and what's happening is that the sated, evil, is joining the thirsty, joining the holy, um, because it's siphoning off from the holiness. It's taking the, um, the dregs, it's taking the scraps from the holy. So Malchut descends, goes down, 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 to the point that even evil can somehow, you know, get the scraps from it, but it's still diminished scraps. That's all according to Rashi's definition of, of the word svot, which means joining. Radak, however, Radak, though, second paragraph, regards svot as increase. 
So how does he explain the passage that the thirsty increase the sated? So let me explain. There's two explanations of the word svot. One says joining, and one says increasing. So the one that says it means Rashi says join, and Radak says increase. These are commentaries on the Torah, on, on the verse. But what Kabbalah is doing is saying that the two commentaries in the verse actually reveal two different Kabbalistic paths, which is amazing. So again, the first path is joining. Joining means that as one thing is, the other thing is in proximity and also is mirroring that first thing. So we have the light that goes in holiness. The light goes tzimtzum, down, 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 malchut, atzilot, bria, yitzira, asiyah, goes all the way down to this reality. And when the light is so low, evil can also join up with it and take some of its energy. Right? That's, that's the first path. The second explanation of those photos increase means that the evil can get even more energy than good. So this question is, how does that work? To tell me that evil can also siphon off, right, when the light is coming down and getting diminished, that evil can also misdirect some of the energy, that's one thing. But what does it mean that, that thir the thirsty increase the state of that evil, right, evil can get even more light than holiness? How does that work? That's what we're explaining. That's what I explained today. If you go to the source, you can even get an abundance of light even more than holiness because holiness is going to get through that, as we clarified in our conversation before, holiness always gets through that path of tzimtzum because it's about light and vessel and, and, and really em embracing the light. But evil can have that workaround and just get it straight from the source. Here we go. Sitra Akra, let's continue the next section. Sitra Akra, which means the other side, evil, receives from Makif infinite patience. Let's go. To explain. The nurture of the external, in other words, how does evil get its energy? It takes one of two forms. This is what I've been explaining this whole morning, this paragraph um, and beyond is what, I'm tr what, what I was trying to explain. Right, the nurture, to, uh, just to do this one more time, the nurture of the external, external means, in the, in, in, the, in the quotes, external means the dark side, evil, negativity. The nurture of the external takes one of two forms. How does evil gain its energy? One of two ways. One method is receiving from the hinder part as an external by numerous condensations of the external aspect of the vessels of Malchut. In other words, one way is through tzimtzum. Through mad and radical tzimtzum, the light gets so diminished that it can even end up in a dark place. That's one path. But the other method, and this is the brand new method of chapter 8, that we've introduced this morning, the other method of receiving, sorry, is receiving from the supernal makif, and I used that term before, makif, is from the supernal makif, um, which is the ultimate of transcendence. So it gets from one of two polar opposite ways, either from the lowest of the lowest places or from the highest of the highest places. As I told you before, the Arayin Sof, the infinite light, is both wildly transcendent and wildly limited. So when it's wildly limited, evil can get from there. When it's wildly infinite, guess what? Evil can also take from there. And he says in parentheses, and this is also of the hinder part and externality of the makif, evil within the makif, this is a parenthetical statement, even as it might get from the beyond level, the beyond realm, it's still only taking from the hinder part over there, which is a, a little clarification that he's making here, which I don't want to elaborate on right now because let's first develop the core idea. So to develop this idea, he, starts, he quotes from Pirkei Avot, from Ethics of Our Fathers. 
Let's continue. The sages said in Avo chapter 5, there were 10 generations from Adam to Noah. And there were also 10 generations from Noah to Abraham. So again, let me just break down this statement. Adam and Eve, right, first human beings. So from Adam and Eve until Noah, Noah of the great flood, builder of the ark, right? And from Adam to Noah, 10 generations. From Noah to Abraham, also another 10 generations. So 20 generations from Adam to Abraham, right? Adam to Noah, Noah to Abraham. Take a look. And what, what do our sages say? What do the rabbis say? To indicate, or this indicates, I know it says two, but I'll just, I'm rephrasing this a little bit. This indicates God's patience with the many generations that repeatedly angered him. Right? God had patience for 10 generations until he finally brought the flood. And then God had, had patience for another 10 generations until finally Abraham came and brought light into the world. But the point is that God didn't take out the world after one or two generations. God waited. God has patience. So let's continue inside. So God's patience is called Erech In Hebrew, it's the, the phrase of patience, when we talk about God's patience, is Erech which literally means long faces. When you tell somebody, oh, why the long face? It usually means that they're sad, right? Right? That's the, I don't know why that expression, but that's the expression. Um, but in biblical language, when we say long face, it means not sad, it means patient. Erechapaye means long faces. Apayim. Af would mean face, apayim is faces. So let's continue inside. All these generations received their nurture. How did they exist? If they were angering God, if they were doing bad things, yeah, eventually the flood came or eventually Abraham, but how were they existing? Like in the game, you create a game with rules, somebody breaks the rules, they should be eliminated from the game, right? Zap. So how did they exist for 10 generations? So he explains, all these generations received their nurture from the realm of Erechapayim. Patience. Well, it's not the literal translation, but patience, slow to anger. That's what the, the Mishnah is teaching. That's what the Mishnah of it is teaching us. They had all these generations who were repeatedly angering God, and they were still alive. They still existed. How did they exist? Because God was, I guess not infinitely, but God was very patient and slow to anger. Let's continue inside. It may sound like we're talking about random things. It's all going to come together. He's just building a foundation here. Similarly, the Talmud in Erevin asks, why does the verse say erech in the plural? Long faces, rather than erech af, a long face, the singular. So the Talmud answers, listen to this answer, it's unbelievable. To show that God is patient with the righteous and patient with the wicked. You want to know theodicy? This is theodicy. God is both patient with the righteous and the wicked. What does that mean? Rashi. Rashi explains that a poem implies countenances, faces, whether cheerful or angry. What does it mean that God has long faces? God has patience whether of, in either of two faces. Whether a happy face, God is patient with a happy face. God is also patient with an unhappy face. What does that mean? Let's continue inside. God's cheerful expression may be lengthened and postponed for the righteous, rewarding them in the future. Right, if God is happy, you may not see it right away. You did a mitzvah. So you got the points. 
So new, how come I can't collect in the points? Erechapayim, God has patience. What does that mean? Take it easy. You did a mitzvah. You want instant gratification. Not always. Sometimes yes, but sometimes not. Sometimes it's going to take a while till you see the fruits of your, of your labor. Maybe even it will take until the hereafter to see it. But that's what Rashi says. God's cheerful expression may be lengthened and postponed for the righteous, rewarding them in the future. Might not be now. A, a righteous a tzaddik may never see the fruits of their labor in this lifetime. You can have a tzaddik, a person who does good things, helps out other people, does what God wants, and they can live a very difficult life. Poverty and suffering and pain and difficulty. And the question is why? And the answer is, that's not an answer, but it's a response. It doesn't explain why, it just states the fact. God has a long, long faces. Even when he's happy, it might take a while. The tzaddik recognizes. The tzaddik's learned the Talmud and even learned Rashi. The tzaddik knows that not always. Why sometimes it plays out right away and sometimes it's only in the world to come? The tzaddik also has the humility to know that we can never know. Right? Why do some things cause instant gratification some things will never... We don't know. Conversely, and conversely, we're in the middle of a sentence here, three lines from the bottom of this page, 128, and conversely, his angry countenance also may be lengthened. What does that mean? Postponing the punishment of the wicked for the world to come. So sometimes, when God's happy, it'll take a while to show you. And when God's not happy, it'll also take a while to show. Sometimes it's instant. Sometimes it's delayed. It's kind of like when you get money in uh, PayPal or Cash App. Do you want an instant transfer? Or do you want the three to five business days? Right? I'm kidding. Or not kidding. That's, that's the way it is when you get... Yes? You guys with me? Yes? Okay. Anyway, what's the point? The point is that it says in Pirkei Avot that there were ten generations and they angered God one after the other after the other. And the, and the, the student might ask the question, one second, God, if you're not happy, just get rid of him. Slow to anger. Conversely, God's happy. How come we don't see it? Slow to, slow to reward also. Sometimes not. Sometimes punishment comes down right away. Sometimes uh, consequence. Sometimes reward comes right away. But oftentimes it doesn't. It doesn't mean that God is not aware or God is not taking care of business. It's just a different reality. Now, that's one point. Let's continue to page 130. So we spoke about God's patience. Now we're going to go even beyond patience. Now we're going to go beyond patience to the realm where good and evil don't mean anything, as we talked about before. Now, the infinite light is holy and removed from creation. Let's, uh, let's, let's re repeat the sentence. The infinite light is holy and now, holy is not, a great, um, is not a great translation here. The Hebrew says, I'm sure it says, Kadosh Yeah, Holy and removed. Kadosh means holy, literally, but here in this context, it means removed, separate, distinctive. The infinite light is distinct and removed from creation. Hence the term infinite light. He, or the infinite light, is utterly out of range of comparability with creation, not to be compared to them at all. In other words, 
God is not in the structure that God created. Sorry, God is also in the structure because we said that God invests himself in the structure, but God also, there is a, an element of God, although I don't want to divide God into different elements, but there is an aspect of God that remains beyond the universe. Right? Going back to the game, create, game creation, right? God creates a game, God creates a universe with rules. You do this, that's what, that's, the game is designed that you should do this and not do that. And within that realm, within that world, those rules are hard and fast. That will it further enhance the game. That will mess up the game. Even though there's free choice. But once you step outside the game, those rules don't apply. So when we talk about infinite light, which essentially is the idea of the Aryan Sof as it is beyond beyond, so it's completely removed from creation. It's removed from any type of comparison any relativism to creation. Hence, like, look at this verse from Malachi, from the prophets. Hence, I, God, have not changed. That means that through creation, God says, even after creation, I have not changed. Why? Because although I've created something new, I've created a realm with all these rules, I haven't changed. There's a part of me that is invested in this game, but the essence part of me has not changed based on the creation of this game, based on the creation of this, of this world. Unaffected, after the M dash over there, fourth line. God is unaffected and unchanged by creation because all of creation is not, i.e. it's nothing, it's garnished, it's nothing in his terms. Similarly, it is written in Job, and this is probably the most direct quote from Scripture about this, what we're talking about today, if you sin, do you affect him? I mean, this is like the most direct quote we have, right? If you sin... Do you hurt him? If your transgressions are many, what do you do to him? If you are righteous, what do you give him? And what does he take from your hand? In other words, ultimately, on the deepest of levels, evil doesn't hurt God, God good doesn't help God. It's only when God chooses to create and faces the game and is invested in the game, sorry, not the game, well, maybe, th this world that our actions affect this thing that God created. But beyond that, going back to the example of soccer, hands and feet, hands are no good on the soccer pitch, but in real life, nothing wrong with hands. I, I know this is uncomfortable because we're saying, well, one second, one second. You're saying murder outside this world is fine? How do you explain that? I can't explain it. I can't explain it. I Or you could, yeah. They're just energy. You know, you can kill someone's body, but you can't really like. Well, there you go. Yeah. Person, I guess. But you can't actually take out. Right. You can't actually kill and destroy on that level. You don't have that power. On that level, that that framework doesn't exist. That can be either taken, harmed, or helped, or and none of that can be is is changed on that level. Right. So that's the point. On a relative level, then, it, then it's relative, then it affects. Right. Then what we do absolutely matters. But on, a, on an absolute level beyond, what we do doesn't affect. Now, does that mean that we should be cavalier and, 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 and unmotivated to do a mitzvah or to be careful? No, this is not, the, today's class is really not, uh, not really not, today's class is not advocating Evil. It's really not. I know it sounds kind of like we may be approaching that. It's not. 
right? This is not a class saying it doesn't matter what you do. Because we're in the game. We're in the game. So what we do does matter, exactly. We're, in, we're literally in the game. We're literally in that, in that universe. And so what we do absolutely matters. But outside, it doesn't. So let's take a look at this last line of, of this top paragraph from 130. He says, why is it that Job says that if you sin, you don't hurt him. If you do good, you don't, you don't help him. Essentially, this is because all the actions of man, of human beings, are not, nothing, before him. In other words, on the infinite core level, now let's continue. It, it's, it's, it, it doesn't ultimately, it doesn't affect, doesn't help or, or hurt God on that level. Accordingly, let's continue. Our sages state in Midrash Rabbah, the way of God is perfect. The word of the Lord is pure. He is a shield to all who take refuge in him. And what do our sages say? If his ways are perfect, how much more so must, must he be? In other words, if his ways are perfect, he's perfect. And perfect means unaffected by anything else. Let's continue. Rav said, this is all a quote from the Midrash. Rav said, mitzvot were given only to purify his creatures through them. In other words, the mitzvah is not for God. The mitzvah is for us. In the game, the mitzvah helps us. For what does it matter to God whether one slaughters through the throat or the nape? It is certain that the mitzvah were given only to purify man. It's, let me explain this because it's really a powerful statement. Rav says, the way you shecht an animal, the way you slaughter an animal, is you're not doing it for God. What does God care whether you shech this way or that way? Through the neck or through the back of the neck? The only benefit is for, for us that we should be... There's, you don't have to eat meat, but if you eat meat and, want it, and, and need to take the life of an animal, do it in the most compassionate, the least cruel way, by, by, with one, with, by taking its life right away and not, not prolonging the suffering of the animal. Again, you don't have to, but if you do, there's an allowance too, but you have to do it in the nicest way, in the kindest way. So who needs that? God needs that or we need that? We need to be compassionate people within the realm, within the game. But let's continue. But to the infinite light, it does not matter at all. In other words, again, on the, beyond, on the level that is beyond or beyond even beyond, the action doesn't matter. Let's continue. The verse says, You shall serve the Lord your God. And it is explained elsewhere that service is necessary for God, but this applies only within the Seder Hishalshlut, within the game. Right? It says, serve God. And it says, you have to serve God. And it's necessary. And it's necessary for God that you serve Him. All true within the game. Within Seder Shalshot. In the 10th sphere of Atzilot, beginning with Chachma. There, man's service, man means human, right? Human service does matter, as we shall soon explain. But to the infinite light, transcending His Shalshot, in other words, the beyond beyond, all of man's works do not matter at all. Thus, the aforementioned Mishnah declaring God's patience for so Many, 132, for so many generations of wickedness, points out that despite their repeated angering of God, they were still granted vitality from Erech meaning the infinite light transcending the Shashua. How did they get light? How did they get energy? Where did they get, the, where did they get that from? They got it from a space that's beyond action, beyond good, beyond evil. So you could have evil that is going to a place that transcends to take the energy from there, for the works of man, final line of, the, of today's session, for the works of man are irrelevant over there, and everyone, even the wicked, may receive from there. So, if evil can transcend, can go to that highest place, 
it can take from there. By the way, this is why. And I, I'm hoping this made sense. I mean, we had a nice introduction that hopefully kind of set, set the, the concept. <coughs> and we just read it inside. Here's the point. Or here's, here's what I wanted to add on. It says, um, the holiday of Purim. Right, the holiday that we celebrate the, 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 um, the foiling of the plot of Haman and Achashverosh, or Haman's plot to kill, the, God forbid, the Jewish people. Okay, why is it called Purim? Holiday Purim, right? We, we do the gifts and we, we dress up. Well, why is it called Purim? So the Megillah says, the book of Esther says, it's called Purim al-Shem ha-Pur. Purim because the poor. What's poor? In per, it's a Persian word, apparently, that means lots, like a lottery. What's the poor? Haman cast lots to determine the day in which he was going to designate as, God forbid, the day to destroy the Jewish people. <coughs> and it fell out on the day that we celebrate Purim, and it was transformed. From, from, a bat, from a sad day, from a potentially doomsday to a, a day of, of a miracle and, and salvation. Okay, that's how the story ends. But the question is, why do we name the holiday after the lots that the bad guy threw to determine the day to try to kill the Jewish people? That's a weird way to name the holiday. Call it Esther. Call it Mordechai. Call it um, Hamantashen. Call it victory. Call it, I don't know, call it something that reflects the good, not the bad. Calling it Purim, that's like the, the plot. You're calling it based on the plot? On the evil plot? That doesn't make any sense. So the Rebbe explains, based on, on the similar idea, that what was Haman saying? Haman, Haman. I call him Haman because that's the way it's uh, vowelized in the Hebrew. Haman knew that in, that in the game, there's no way he's going to destroy the Jewish people. God put the Jewish people here for a purpose. Was he going to take them out? Haman has the power to take out the Jewish people and subvert God's plan. It's never going to happen. People have tried. It's still never happened, right? Because it can't be. So he said, that's within the box. So let me cast lots symbolically to transcend the box. Because a lottery is, by definition, when you don't choose a logical... right. It's not like he looked at the calendar and found a date that made sense, logically. He went beyond logic. He just cast lots. And so that symbolized his attempt to kind of go to a realm that is illogical or super logical, not in the box, a realm where evil and good don't mean anything. And maybe on that level, he could trigger the destruction of the Jewish people, God forbid. Ultimately, it didn't work. Why? Because even on that level, he wasn't able to be successful. And that's why we call it Purim, to show that even on that level, it wasn't successful for whatever reason. I don't want to get into that right now. But the point is that we see this idea of the ability to kind of go to a place beyond the rules to try to get a boatload of energy and whatever you want, bypass the system, essentially. It's kind of what it is, bypass the system to get, uh, to, get uh, to achieve the, um, the ends that, that one wants. And this is the second path that evil can take in energizing itself. So path number one, which we've talked about for, for a number of weeks, is where it takes from the residue, from the, the remains of the tzimtzum, right? The light goes down so far that it even is accessible on some level as the leftovers for, the, uh, for evil. That's like, that's also. That's not high level light, that's like also light. But it can also get high level light by bypassing the system of good and evil. What's the message? 
Well, I mean, we're, we kind of stopped here. Today's session ends kind of concluding how, and this is how evil can gain its power. Great, a really great empowering message to take into the week, right? So now we know how evil can prosper. Ay, <laughs> this doesn't feel good. So a few, a few points uh, to mention as we think about our, you know, what we do with that for this week. So let's recognize the power of the system that God created and the expectations that God has within the system. Let's recognize that God did choose to create this reality and did choose to put us here for a purpose. And yes, maybe there's a chance, we'll, we'll talk about the ultimate end of evil anyway, but we're not there yet. We're, we're there where there's a possibility for evil to get a lot of, a lot of energy. But notwithstanding that, God did create a universe. God, kid, God did create this world. God did choose what is good and what is not good. And so when we operate within that paradigm, it's not meaningless. It's meaningful to God. The same God that in essence is beyond creation, that same God chose. And the truth is that choice makes it even more, even more meaningful. What I mean by even more meaningful, if, if one did not need to choose, but chose anyway, it makes it very meaningful and significant. God did not need to choose this world. God didn't need to create this world, but God did. And so we are the product of God's choice, of God's really of God's love. God wanted us to be, and so he made us. And so th this reality is predicated on God's love and God's choice. And thus, we should take our responsibility seriously and recognize that what we do does matter. Yes, maybe there's another realm, whatever, that beyond that choice altogether, fine. But we exist within the game. We're, in the, we're on the basketball court. <coughs> we're on the soccer pitch or a football pitch, <coughs> and what we do absolutely matters. And so, as we conclude today's class, let's uh, recommit ourselves to bringing light into the world and doing everything we can to make sure that those around us are also filled with that light and that we stave off the negative influences. <coughs> the negative might seem attractive. The negative could seem, does seem very tempting. But we have a mission, we have a mandate, and uh, we need to be steadfast to that. Also, the other messages. At the end of the day, evil is not the only thing that can go in a transcendent way. We can also go transcendent, like we spoke about many times in classes, even recently last week, we had a few classes about this. We shouldn't limit ourselves to good deeds based on what we understand. We shouldn't limit ourselves to the mitzvot that makes sense to us. Let's also go beyond, beyond our rationale, beyond the logical, to do a mitzvah that stretches the limits of our imagination. And with this, we will indeed create a beautiful world and ultimately connect the two realities, the game and the author of the game, which is really the definition of Mashiach. When the author of the game says, you did it, well done, now we can connect <laughs> directly. All right, thank you for joining me for Kabbalah and Coffee. Um, any questions from our online crew? Made sense? Yes? No questions asked? Everyone's buying? <laughs> All right, good. Good, good, good. Good to see everyone. Uh, just a quick announcement for everybody. So tomorrow we are having our first ever Monday afternoon Peachy Parsha Lunch and Learn. 
if you're wondering what is the Pichi Parsha, it's basically a study of the Torah section of the day. We're actually studying the first two sections of the book of, of the opening Torah portion in the, in the book of Deuteronomy. So we'll study that along with lunch from Spicy Peach, which is a local restaurant, kosher restaurant. So the way it works is you put in the order through Spicy Peach, whatever you want, <coughs> you pay for it, and then we pick it up and bring it here, and the class is going to be downstairs in Jeff's place. So that is that. That's tomorrow, every Monday, unless I'm out of town or there's a holiday or whatever. Monday's at noon. That will be a consistent class. Um, that's Monday. Tuesday night, we have a special event on Zoom, Zoom only. It's called, it's called the Archaeological Claim to Jerusalem, where we go under, underground and look at artifacts and the archaeological history that is buried underneath Jerusalem, a history that many have try to prevent from being unearthed for various reasons because it points to a very strong Jewish connection to the land, as you, as you can imagine. And we'll be exploring that. So get on your overalls. I don't know if people dig in overalls. I don't know that that's a thing. Or your hat, your Indiana Jones gear. And join us for the big dig Tuesday night on Zoom. And then what else do we have? Um, Wednesday night. Torah studies. Yeah, oh yeah, Torah studies in person here, yes. And online, same deal. Good. All right. Good to see everybody. Mariana, Tony, Fran, Joy, David, Danielle, Toba. It's good to see everybody. Hey, Mariana. Good to see you. Hi. Hi. I'm on the car. I see. I see. Safe travels. Amazing. Okay, good. Great to see you. Great to see everybody. All right. Regards. Lots of love. We'll see you guys. Take care. Hey, Danielle.